0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: Howdy, Ed. Um, I'm not feeling so yee-haw this week given terrifying world events, Mm. but I'm looking forward to uh, leaving that aside with the privilege that we have that we can for but an hour or so to chat culture. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Uh, As you say, it is a privilege that we can kind of do this for a little bit and not have to worry about being shelled yes. which is obviously not something that the people of ukraine can uh, say at the moment and that has occupied quite a bit of my headspace this week is following the news out of ukraine and generally trying to get a sense of what's happening there and feeling a little helpless about it but also in following things like um the Kiev independent who of the uh News, independent newspaper based out of Kiev who have been reporting on all of the stuff happening there and um, who have been very active on Twitter, you know, providing updates on how the war is going it's, I, that has been I don't know, it, it, it has been, it has lifted my spirits a little bit because you were getting all these stories of the Ukrainian people standing up to this act of aggression against them and there are these you know, very um, heroic things like the the story of the Snake Ivan soldiers who just said go fuck yourself before being killed or Zelensky staying in the city and posting updates and things like that which it's hard not to be moved by the spirit of people willing to stand up to this act of aggression uh, even whilst knowing that their resistance is likely to spur on sort of even greater pain and suffering upon them Um, and just yeah it's 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 a scary it's a scary situation i think there's there's not much (laughs) that can be said about it other than it's very scary and obviously much much love to anyone in ukraine and uh if anyone listening to this is able to support by donating to organizations then yeah obviously please do so obviously the people people need help and as such because that has been the thing I thought of the most this week—it uh, kind of doesn't seem like there's much news stuff to talk about in terms of film, and television. At least nothing that really leapt out. But you and I both watched some of of John Mulaney's appearance on Saturday Night Live last night. Obviously, his fifth time as host and his first time back as uh, since he has stint in rehab, which has been much publicized, and the the birth of his child, and all that stuff that has made him an unlikely tabloid fixation. What did you think about his his return?
1: Well, SNL is in such a weird place right now. I think so much is being openly laughed about while a lot of other stuff is being desperately covered up. And I felt that mm. it all really came to a head with the stark difference between John Mulaney's monologue and the five-timers club sketch. Now, SNL opened with the ukrainian choir of new york singing um a prayer for ukraine which was incredibly beautiful like seeing the candles and what a choir ed like i'm Mm. I'm not ashamed to say that i'm someone who's incredibly moved by choral arrangements and performances because there is something about lots of voices coming together to sing one thing that i think just affects us on a very human level but as moved as i was watching it i thought well Lorne Michaels is exactly the sort of person who would consider having Putin as a host. Mm. Like, it's a show that chooses to have values when it needs to. Like, it's not a show of principle. I don't understand what SNL believes in, given that that it's trying to be current and topical. And I think given how horrendous the situation in Ukraine is, it makes sense that they wanted to acknowledge it and say, this isn't something we can joke about. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't see them having done that quite a while with lots of things. And it feels like it's something that someone's told them that they should do. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't get the sense that there's a lot of heart there. And then you have someone like John Mulaney, who is... Hosting for the fifth time, and given that the previous time he hosted SNL was when he relapsed after a long stretch of sobriety, uh, you know, it's hard to think that SNL isn't a part of that. <laughs> um, mm. and given how, as sort of detailed in oral histories of uh, life from New York, for example, there's not a huge amount of care or um support from snl throughout its history of many of its um cast members writers having drug addictions because the entire setup of snl is is a petri dish for this kind of behavior like Mm. you take someone who doesn't have any addictive tendencies and you push them essentially in cult like conditions where they're barely getting any sleep they have to perform they have to kind of churn out things on a basis to you know to essentially um, get the approval of one man it's bizarre to put it lightly so it was lovely to see John Mulaney having said that and for him to kind of say that about SNL and to say this is such a great place for mental health and sobriety and everyone laughed and I was like but we all know this this has been the case for decades like that joke isn't funny anymore.
0: Mm. Because
1: it, because it keeps implying somehow, well, it was the first time I'd heard a joke of that didn't treat it as if it was something that had happened in the past, that it was still actively harmful. But it's like, okay, looking at all of these people sitting in their masks <laughs> and that people were paid during the pandemic to, to sit in. Uh, so they were noted as uh, employees. They were an employed audience so that they could get around new york covid laws and a lot of these people were first responders as if this is somehow some kind of gift and it's just absolutely wackadoodle to me like the show must not must not go on Ed. i think is what i'm trying to say here but Mulaney looked good it's actually really nice to see someone put on weight i'll just put that I'll, I'll just put that there and the five timers club felt very I think it's a difficult sketch because it's where SNL gets its most sort of chummiest. And it's like, you're all in on this in joke. We're all, mm-hmm. you know, it's this eliteness and ha 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 and all very chummy. And John Mulaney's own routine is like so polished. <laughs> like he is, he's a phenomenal stand up. Like he's managing to be self it wouldn't even say self-deprecating he's more just like he's back and he's self-aware like some of the funniest jokes about interventions I've heard in a while and there are a lot of those and he seems healthy but then yeah the five timers club is like okay we reference that Steve Martin has a much younger wife you know Candice Bushnell and, and harassment and oh yeah let's remind everyone that Paul Rudd's you know, people's sexiest man alive at the moment. I, I feel like it's nice to see John Mullaney well, but I wish it didn't have to be on SNL. Mm. That's my feelings. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, as far as check ins go, you could probably want for one that's a little less high stress and maybe directly linked to his, his own history of struggles with sobriety. And also, as far as the 5, five times sketch goes, I think they should have retired that after the very funny thing they did when Ben Affleck hosted like a year or two ago where he it was the fifth time he'd hosted but they just gave him like a balloon or something. And they were kind of like, yeah, just kind of highlighting the fact that uh, even though it was the fifth time, he's hardly a favourite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was very much like, I think it was <laughs> there must have been like a 15-year gap between the fourth and fifth times hosting for him and I thought that was very, very funny. Um, so then, going back to the whole, you know, the velvet jackets and stuff, yeah, it kind of feels odd at this point. Although, always nice to see Elliot Gould show up in something.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, and especially reading what was it like Chest Hair magazine or something? It was <laughs> yes. <laughs> reading just a wonderful touch. <laughs> um, if only Grover was there as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, just like you asked. <laughs>
0: yeah shout out to chris forburn <laughs> big, big props in- to wonderful chris <laughs> an incredible joke that i still see referenced like at least once a week so, <laughs> really is out in the uh, in the firmament okay so we'll go on to the main topic for this week as i said not a huge amount in news wise that kind of really feels worth talking about this week so uh this week's topic is about the current state of the romantic comedy and this was inspired by a newsletter that you sent to me by uh Anne helen peterson in which she talks to um, scott meslow who's the author of the book from hollywood with love the rise fall and rise again of the romantic comedy which is a book about the history of the rom- romantic comedy examined through 16 examples and it's a very good interview a very good newsletter i'll provide a link to it in the uh, description for this episode if you want to read it but um it was a very interesting uh, discussion about the current state of the romantic comedy, which was a huge genre. Certainly, I think when you and I were uh, young, l- like literally when we were children, <laughs> um, like the romantic comedy was huge in the '80s and '90s, and then fell off. And then the argument that's made in the book and that's discussed in the interview is that it has uh, risen again somewhat in the fact that in recent years you've seen a lot of rom-coms crop up on streaming services. And you and I thought it'd be fun to discuss that premise because on the one hand, yes, it is true that we're seeing a lot more romantic comedies crop up uh, and gain a bit more attention in recent years. I think Netflix in particular with uh, Always Be My Maybe and the uh, To All the Boys trilogy have made a sort of a mark for themselves. And there's uh, ones on Hulu and Amazon and things like that that have done particularly well. But I don't know, I think reading that interview, it seemed to me like it was sort of half right in that there are more being made, but it still doesn't necessarily feel as if the rom com has arisen from this sort of fall that it's gone for. At that most is I don't know, holding on to a tree branch midfall mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. just kind of uh, having to hold on for dear life there.
1: Yeah. I mean the problem is, is that Nora Ephron set the highest bar mm-hmm. with yeah. When Harry Met Sally, and then came out with You've Got Mail, and just oh. For someone who had been through an awful lot of heartache, she really managed to remain a romantic. And I mm-hmm. think there's something really lovely. About
0: and it's perhaps not a coincidence that Her last film, which isn't technically a romantic comedy but has elements of it, was Julia and Julia, which came out in two thousand and nine. And when you look at the that arc of the history of the rom com, that does feel like the tail end of it. And so, like that being her last film, film and then her dying a few years later, kind of can't help but feel like that was the
1: end of an era. Absolutely, and very much the golden era, (laughs) because. I think it's mainly because Nora Ephron had such a... She was quite old-fashioned in a way, or she was classic. Like, she could create classics because she had an emphasis on really good dialogue. Like, Mm -hmm. the chemistry that she managed to create and bring out of people was, like, nothing quite else. And I can watch When Harry Met Sally endless times and not get bored of it, and feel like I find something new in it each time. I think because it is the classic and it is the ur text for so many things that it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel tropey. It doesn't, it Mm. doesn't feel kind of worn down. But I think, and I don't know how much of this is because her parents were screenwriters kind of during the golden age of Hollywood, But she has that kind of screwball quality to her writing, and it feels much more like His Girl Friday that she's modelling things on rather than, I don't know, love story. You know, she has such a... Almost like, you know, and I know this is um, something that people say and then don't manage to back up particularly well, but it's kind of Shakespearean. Like, Mm. When Harry Met Sally has a lot of much to do about nothing to it, and she understands how incredibly intelligent people can be really fucking dumb, and that's where you find both the sexual tension and the comedy. And I completely agree with you. I think 2009 was where we started to tail off, and, and I can't think of a, like, I think the rom-com is such an essentially UK-US thing, because we have sort of Richard Curtis in the UK, Nora Ephron in the US, but again, sharing a lot of the same kind of sensibilities. And it's it's a problem because it is a really high bar and almost feels unfair. And I think rom com is really maligned as a genre because it's seen it it, it's it's mainly seen as chick flick, right? Like Mm. its association with oh, women are the majority audience for this kind of makes it seem sort of like hormonal or or because this is the thing I find so hilarious about. you know, when people talk about it being kind of mindless or sentimental, and it's like, have you ever seen a Nora F film? <laughs> That's not what she's about at all. And I think things that I've seen recently that I've quite liked are, for example, Set It Up, uh, mm. a, Nef- a Netflix original, um, because again, I think it has that fun semi-farcical, note-not- vulgar, screwball quality to it, where sweet zoe Deutsch, um following in in her mother's footsteps um and glenn powell who have fantastic chemistry that isn't romantic from the off um and then you can see how it develops and i think a secret to a lot of rom-coms is that your couple your, your proto-couple have to have chemistry that isn't romantic and then the fun thing is oh how does it become romantic how do they end Mm. up together like that's the mystery that's pulling you through Um, or if they do have that immediate romantic chemistry what is the how is their path of true love not going to run smooth like what's going to get in the way and set it up to just really fun and the fact that it has this kind of parallel couple thing happening so it's almost like two rom-coms in one and it's being quite conscientious about you know the, the sort of that kind of relationship, I haven't actually seen Happiest Season. And I think what is really sad is that just as we're starting to get through to finally having better representation of LGBTQ on screen, I I want a gorgeous, queer rom com. And I don't feel like we've had that yet. I don't feel like we've had when Harry met John. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, and I and I think that would be incredible because like kissing Jessica Stein trying to do it, but I think The problem with Kissing Jessica Stein being in 2001, it had the weight of, you have to talk about the coming out. Like you Mm. can't have, because Weekend is absolutely beautiful by Andrew Haig, but that's not a rom-com. Like it has some really funny moments in it, but that is essentially, the the burden on queer cinema has been, oh, you have to kind of explain the inherent trauma of being a queer person in a, a heteronormative patriarchal society and culture. Whereas, you know, and, and that was what was wonderful about looking. But again, it's TV. <laughs> yes, there was the movie, but that's a feature length finale. That's something very, It's very different. It wasn't in theatres. I also, I, th- I think as well, because I'm thinking of Palm Springs, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, I really enjoyed it. But I think there was a point where it completely forgot that it was rom com and just went down the genre hole of everything's quantum, right? Yeah. And I was like, I'm neither romming nor coming in this moment. Uh, and I think that's the problem where you twist too many genres, like the wrong one gets picked at the crucial kind of act three moment. And I love high genre, I love allegory as my sort of. Um, <laughs> Endless uh, ballad to Yellow Jackets continues. But it but it just wasn't woven in tightly enough for me. But it was fun to see something a bit higher concept. Um, and it really captured that sort of quite um, mid to late millennial, what the fuck's the point? Like everything feels very repetitive and not sure if I fall in alignment with this kind of idea. Of romantic love but it would be great to see like I, I'd love to see stuff that is fluffy or stuff that has kind of doesn't shy away from the darkness but still is a story of two people getting together that is funny because that's why I love sleeping with other people. Leslie Headland's much overlooked <coughs> two-hander between Alison Brie and Jason Sudeikis who have great chemistry and again have that very kind of like sparring Back and forth, and you know, it it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, heterosexual monogamy is the prize. You know, I think shrill again, we've kind of fallen to TV that really kind of has the for a myriad of different factors is able to show different relationships that we just haven't seen codified in TV before, and how kind of poly and queer relationships kind of come through, and that these can all be alongside each other quite perfectly. Like some of my favourite moments of Shrill are A.D. Bryant and Lolly Adafope talking about their relationships in their giggly girlish way and their orientations are different, but that doesn't actually matter. <laughs> like it doesn't, it, like that's not the thing that, you know, they are people who are attracted to and are trying to have relationships with people. So I think in in terms of the pure rom-com 90 minute it's like New York is its own character. Um <laughs> <laughs> where is it, Ed? I I I miss it and I feel like really we're in a good place to try and bring it back.
0: Yeah, because in the in that in interview again um they talk a little bit about the fact that you know the algorithm in some regards can probably be thanked for the revival in interest in rom-coms because netflix can look at their statistics and think oh wow 10 million people in the last month have watched while you were sleeping or whatever and think okay this is something we should we should do we should make more movies in this genre or they can see that the the example they talk about a lot is like waiting for exhale and think okay like a, a romantic comedy that centers around black women will probably do really well so they are able to see and you know through pure um, capitalistic drive that there is a market for these things and we should make them and on one level that's that's good because movies are being made that are about different experiences and, and I think you know it, it is hard to talk about romantic comedies from the 80s and 90s without particularly in America, without pointing out that they are overwhelmingly very white, yeah. where the most that you will see of a person of colour will be like Dave Chappelle playing Tom Hanks, his best friend, and you've got mail, um, like, they're there to be supporting characters and not much else, and yeah, that's a tremendous failing and an indication of the barriers that existed at the time and still exist to stories that aren't about white people being made in Hollywood. but. I think the problem for me, and this is really just down to the ways in which theatrical distribution has gone in the last sort of 10 years, and particularly, you know, with COVID, I think this has accelerated it, there is just a movement away from things that aren't big event movies being seen as important enough for people to go out of their house and watch in a theatre. And so even if we are in a situation where a lot of rom-coms are being made, and some of them are very good, just as you were talking, I was thinking about how... Um, I think the half of it is probably the best rom-com of the last couple of years.
1: You're so right, because, oh my God, how much I adore the half of it. And I will, oh God, just the thought of that film Mm. makes me feel like I've had, like, I've I've had a big spoon of honey and I'm a happy Mm -hmm. film bear. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just warm and sweet and um, real without being, like, cynical and gorgeous, without being, like, superficial. But I think it's also so funny that you bring it up as a rom com because I hadn't thought of it as that. I think of it as a coming of age film. But you're right, mm. it is a rom com.
0: Yeah, I think style is certainly visually it has more into keeping with I think the modern style of coming of age movie where it's very like um, there's a, there's an element on visual realism to it. Like it's closer to it's closer to Moonlight than Moonstruck. Lovely. Which is not a knock about it, but it does mean that it, it kind of has an air of legitimacy to it that is not often afforded to rom-coms, rightly or wrongly. Yes. Which, uh, so, like, it's easy to kind of view it as, like you say, as a coming-of-age movie versus a rom-com. But I think it's definitely, it's definitely funny enough and romantic enough to qualify. Um, And obviously it is. It's a very clever movie because it's a spin on Cyrano de Bergerac that is... Uh, set in Bombay and about uh, sort of a queer Asian woman so it's it feels very new but it's got this core of rock solid storytelling a story that has been told so many times over the years including uh, currently in theatres right now starring Peter Dinklage and with uh, music by The National which I didn't realise oh, realize.
1: oh. Uh, y- yeah <laughs> uh,
0: apparently the stage play that that movie's based on also had songs by The National so that's but yeah, like it was just I I just saw someone mention that on Twitter. I was like, oh wow, okay, that's cool. I'd not say, what I would have expected.
1: <laughs> me neither, but hey, go for it. I'm always into some some fusion within the same category. Uh, Ed, I'd also put in um, to all the boys I've loved before. Like, sure, yeah. That it, again has a a teenage Asian American protagonist. Again, this is not queer. It's um it's heteronormative and it's based on a book. And I think it's odd that but. but Kind of lovely that in the young adult rom-com is very alive and well. Mm. But I I do think it's, you know, again, the algorithm. There's more effort put into it because that's probably what that level of audience is going to gravitate towards more. And is more likely to go, oh, we have to watch it. And also it's family friendly. A whole family Mm. could watch To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Whereas they might not be able to with When Harry Met Sally.
0: And also, I think uh, if we're in this realm of talking about recent rom-coms that focus on Asian characters, uh, we would probably be remiss if we didn't mention Crazy Rich Asians. Which is? Certainly commercially, like, the most significant of that run of movies, because it was a huge box office success in a way that a lot of romantic comedies haven't been in recent years, and um, kind of... Oh, it, again, this is kind of a COVID thing. You wonder if maybe... Because that movie came in, like, 2018, I think, and, uh, and you know, it sometimes it, you know, it takes a year or two for the copycats and the kind of follow-ups to come out. Maybe if COVID hadn't hit that we would have seen a slew of more theatrically released rom-coms trying to tap into that market, which then, you know, ended up getting pushed... To streaming, which I think is... I think that might be what happened with that movie, The Lovebirds, with Kamel Nongiani and oh. Issa Rae?
1: Yes. I think?
0: Yes. Um, I think that was a case of one where that was meant to come out in theatres and then COVID hit and it ended up just going straight to um, straight to Amazon. But, but that certainly seemed to tap into a pent-up desire for a rom-com, but not just a rom-com, one that was really... Focused on glamour that was really focused on fantasy because obviously it's taking place in this like world of like excessive gross wealth and is very much you know presenting a gateway into this kind of like absolutely fantastical realm of excess that most people won't have access to ever but which also was you know based on a book and was very popular with uh women and you know has all has all of these things that in The last 10 years as as most hollywood studios have abandoned making movies that have you know sort of smallish to medium budgets and have gone all in on big budget spectacle aimed at teenage boys um has largely been been left behind and yeah that that's one that i think really speaks to the desire for these sort of movies to keep getting made but also the difficulty in actually making that happen because clearly the studios themselves are not that willing to shill out, you know, 30 to 40 million dollars for a movie that is unlikely to bring them in, you know, a billion dollars worldwide, which is all that a lot of them are really interested in.
1: Mm, completely. And I also think the thing about a rom-com is that, you know, Palm Springs aside, it's essentially pretty low concept mm-hmm. and, it, and it's endlessly... You know, not to start um, singing Mrs. Potts, but Taylor's as "Old as Time," and mm-hmm. fundamentally, it's it's a genre that that people, I think, whether they like it or not, <laughs> is pretty enduring. And uh, was the Rebel Wilson vehicle? Isn't it romantic? like yes there's formulas and we can enjoy spoofing the formulas as much as we enjoy the formula itself also they came together big Mm. props to that um I think it has it's one of the few films that's made me laugh harder in the credits than (laughs) just Paul Rudd's face in the shower I'll leave it at that (laughs) um and with kind of for example, All the Boys I've Loved Before, that's a franchise. There's a series of books and, you know, that mm, kind of young adult mm-hmm. um, audience is exactly the kind of ones who will see that through. But it's also just enduring to see different people in different relationships and, you know, the human experience often is having relationships with various different people and feeling like a different person and growing like it's just endlessly fertile ground for storytelling but it is also pretty cheap to make because if you have two characters the kind of standard issue one best friend each you know it's it's stuff that you can kind of churn out pretty quickly but i think that does mean that it's fallen to the claws of streaming services who are wanting to churn out content and maybe don't give it as much TLC as it deserves Um, Mm. because when Harry Met Sally for example is still a beautiful looking film and there are some really iconic shots and it's well directed in terms of shot composition and Nora Ephron was like visual storytelling wasn't her like the first tool in her director's kit but it didn't mean that she didn't use it you know just thinking of You've Got Mail, where Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are walking in parallel and just cross paths at the beginning of the film. That tells us everything we need to know going into it. Mm. You know, so... But yeah, they just don't... They feel They feel um, rushed off.
0: Yeah, I think this also ties into the death of the quote-unquote death the fall or whatever of the genre in the sort of mid mid to late 2000s is i do think that you ended up in a situation where people were making sort of half-hearted rom-coms which weren't particularly good the example i always think of again a movie from 2009 so you know with that seems to definitely be an important and uh, terrible year for the genre was uh, *The Ugly Truth*, the rom-com with Catherine Heigl and Gerard Butler. Oh god! Oh, it's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a really terrible, a really terrible movie. I think Gerard Butler in general is like he's an okay actor, and he's certainly f- settled into a good niche in recent years with the kind of no-nonsense action movies they make. But he is not a good choice for a romantic lead and particularly in romantic comedy which you also see in that movie i think it's called playing for keeps yes. Where he plays like uh... i should remember that the flop house podcast always refers to that movie as bad dad soccer dad <laughs> um <laughs> and that's all <laughs> that's all i remember of the plot of that movie but like there was definitely this sense that the genre was sputtering people didn't have too many good ideas or that the ideas that were being made weren't of the top quality and they but hollywood was still churning out so many of them every year and it just seemed to you know eventually cannibalize itself and and the new crop of stars didn't necessarily seem that interested in starring in them like you didn't see emma stone appearing in too many romantic comedies she went in for more like just straight out and out comedies yeah there was just like there there, there wasn't this interest amongst a lot of people to you know make them as good as possible. Uh which then you know created a spiral where even the good ones, like the uh, Ghosts of Girlfriends Past with mm-hmm. Matthew McConaughey, which is a pretty fun uh movie uh with a really solid premise, or definitely maybe was also like a pretty solid one. Good Ryan like Reynolds performance in that.
1: Maybe, yeah, that was a fun one. But is but like the thing about Jared Butler is that he he's clearly very game. Mm-hmm. For, for things like the man starred in Geostorm. But yeah, I think it was the mistake of like, he's a hunk and that's all it is required. And it's like, no, you, you need a lot more than that. And that's the thing about Ryan Reynolds, despite the fact he looks like a model, he's very silly. Like he's yeah. he's got he's got the ROM and he's got the calm.
0: Mm. Also, what was the I'm trying to remember. P.S. I Love You, that was the other one. Yes. Gerald Butler was in where he the dead.
1: Swank.
0: Dead husband.
1: Yeah, that was such a weird adaptation because I remember people going absolutely nuts for that book. And then it was like, and it's in America now. <laughs> mm. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Hitch, you know. The, Hitch was a big one. Hitch was a big one, but that, you know, the key thing was like, oh, you know, prosthetics and all of this, like, does Meet the Fockers count as a romantic you know, Meet the Parents count as romantic comedy? It's all really kind of quite gross. And I do feel like the gross out vulgarity tending towards, you know, in, in the US. But you know what? The first American Pie, yes, it's a teen film, but that's a romantic comedy that doesn't mm. have the same kind of strict tropes the other ones do. I really like the first film. I think it's very sweet. Yeah. But I think the kind of tend towards gross out after that kind of made things feel quite silly and and unrealistic. And it wasn't like, Oh, I'm clumsy or we have foibles or it's all a big misunderstanding. It's like, no, you know, we have all got diarrhea in a dress shop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was, that was exactly what I was thinking of as well. Yeah. And I feel like another issue with the genre at the moment is that, there may be rom, but there's not a lot of com.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. There definitely seems to have been in the. But ba- basically, again, all of this always comes down to like blaming Disney and Marvel and things like that. But it's it's, it's a it's a general industry wide thing where, as it became apparent that the mega bucks was in movies that could play worldwide, comedies tended to get a lot less attention because comedies as a rule or at least in the the view of Hollywood studios don't travel as well because there's just a cultural specificity to comedy that is not not necessarily the case with action or things like that so yeah so there's definitely been those two genres in general have really declined in recent years just in the number of those movies being made which is again is probably why you tend to see more comedy movies cropping up on streaming services than in theaters even separate from the whole thing of covid and then every so often you'll get like a 22 jump street that comes out and is a massive massive hit and makes you think yeah there's a market out here for live action comedy you know if you have cool interesting people making it and then you you know market it well but then no one else wants to jump on that train because even a movie like 22 jump street which was you know like a huge hit in america i think it made like over 200 million dollars or something which is insane for a comedy it still didn't do huge business worldwide or you know like a modest success like game night yeah which is a tremendously funny film mm-hmm. that's got more th- thought put into how it's shot and edited and put together than like most comedies and just has so many great gags Owned, was like an extremely modest hit in the US and you know, wasn't the sort of breakout success that you would really need to get studios more broadly to think yeah we should you know start giving screenwriters with fun interesting ideas 30 billion dollars to realize it and, and why then those screenwriters then end up going to um, streaming services who for whom the cost of doing business and the risk involved in making sort of low low to mid-budget movies is less because they're not concerned with making their money back, they're concerned with, you know, making a movie that will show up in people's algorithms and make them say hey, this is pretty good and, you know, try and grow their audience that way
1: Mm.
0: but I think the underlying problem that a lot of that has is that even if movies are, you know, big on streaming services quote-unquote big because like we don't really have the sort of hard data to actually say how many people are watching these movies we just have a general sense from you know how much people are talking about them online and even then it's not necessarily an indication that they're like big outside of twitter or whatever they're still not central to the culture in the way that rom-coms used to be like they obviously the 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 big examples we've talked about are sort of like something like a you've got mail which was like a big hit that so many people saw um or you know the biggest rom-com hit of all time uh, my big fat greek wedding which yeah. was just a total unbelievable zeitgeist busting movie that the likes of which we'll probably never see again like those were movies that everyone felt they had to go and see and that was really central to the culture whereas everything with streaming services is so fragmented if you don't have hulu then you can't watch happiest season you know so like it's not really a case where a movie can break out and really be seen by anyone to the same extent that it was the case when rom-coms were a real force theatrically yes and then also i think one of the things that i think holds back a lot of modern rom-coms in particular i'm thinking about the movie plus one which i watched in preparation for this because it was cited at the end of that um interview in the newsletter as you know kind of a really good modern example is i think a lot of modern rom-coms just don't look very nice like they all feel fairly cheap and like as you've said yeah rom-coms are by definition Pretty easy to make, and pretty you know you just need like a good concept and a good script, and then you don't need a huge amount of money to to put them together. But it still uh, feels as if they don't have the lushness that I think of when I think of rom coms. Obviously, you talked about when Harry met Sally, and uh, and you know you've got Mail, also um, Sleepless in the Attle. They were movies that had a it really felt like there was money behind them, like not a huge amount of money, but like you could tell these were movies that had been put together with a decent budget behind them. And as such, they really sold, sold the warmth and the fantasy of it all. And whilst I don't have any problem with like something like Plus One, which goes for sort of a realistic look and tone and tries to feel uh, quote unquote authentic, I do feel like there is a certain level of authenticity that is antithetical to the idea of the rom-com, like in the same way that you can't really make musicals that are too realistic because it pushes against the cause of the genre. Unless you're doing like a total deconstructive thing, like, yeah, Lars von Trier with Dancer in the Dark. Uh, maybe if Lars ever does a rom-com, we'll, we'll, we'll get to see what he would do with that material. But I, I, I do feel like that hurts the movies a little bit because particularly in in plus one which is a movie that takes place entirely at a series of weddings the two main characters played by jack quaid and maya erskine are attending as friends who don't want to go to weddings alone and then as they keep going to more weddings and they spend more time together you know they kind of uh, an attraction develops between them and it's it's on you know it's very good very charming leads and very funny but something about the look of it just didn't quite gel with me particularly like there's one section where they're in hawaii and i i kind of feel like a movie that sets a scene in hawaii should look as nice as possible because hawaii is such a beautiful place and such a great place to really lean into that fantasy and instead it all kind of looks a little drab in a way that just doesn't fit with the the aims of the genre
1: completely like Rom-coms don't have to be blatantly aspirational. To also, you know, to n- like, because I, I remember watching Plus One and, and liking it, but also sort of drifting away from it. And again, I think it it forgets the calm and and emphasizes too much the rom, um, mm-hmm. and that it is going for this kind of like modern realistic sort of look. But I was just yearning to be watching Two Night Stand again because I was like, mm-hmm. that that is something that is bubblegummy, actually does really excellent visual storytelling. It's still one of the best credit opening credit sequences I've ever seen because it tells you exactly who your protagonist is and you've not seen her face yet. And it has a really astonishingly good look to it because the whole premise is that these two people are stuck in the same tiny flat together because of a snowstorm. So they, ha- they had to think about how they were going to make it look more interesting than just the same shot (laughs) for the majority of the film of these two people in the same bed and and it doesn't have to be you know really glossy for it not to you know and, and kind of pushing a certain idea of like wealth in your in your face to to look good um because I think that's also the thing about kind of less Nora Ephron but definitely Nancy Myers is that kind of like blown out everything so perfectly white White wine is always flowing, everyone's kind of adorably flawed, but you're like, none of you are flawed. Look at your fucking like perfect house, you know. It's like Stepford on steroids and moon juice. You know, rom coms just because they are light in tone or that it's a it's something quite joyful doesn't mean it can't look beautiful. (laughs) Like surely surely that's part of the That's part of it.
0: Yeah, and and I think that also is one of the things that's got me quite interested in two forthcoming, or one that's just come out, Marry Me, with uh, J-Lo and Owen Wilson, which looks like it's got somebody behind it, like generally does veer into the frothy fantasy element of a a rom-com, and uh, The Lost City with Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock, which, because it's a sort of hybrid of a adventure story in the style of an indiana jones or it's basically just romancing the stone um Mm -hmm. has like a sizable budget i looked it up before and it's about 74 million dollars which is way more than you would expect for a rom-com but because it's a rom-com that also has like big action elements and um brad pitt and all this sort of stuff in it then it can have a bit more money behind it and it can just generally look like it's a little bit nicer and a little brighter and uh i'm hopeful that that movie turns out to be good and successful because that feels like a possible path forward for you know, thin end of the wedge for rom-coms coming back I guess, you know, of being like, hey if people are willing to go out and see a rom-com that's also an action movie, maybe you know, people will start thinking what else can we sprinkle rom-coms into and then eventually just make straight out rom-coms again and put them in theatres.
1: Co-signed, Ed. Co-signed.
0: So we'll end this episode. We end all our episodes of The Shot, Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week?
1: Well, having done the rom-com episode, it seems only apt that my recommendation this week is Heather Havrileski's new book, Foreverland, on the divine tedium of marriage. It is weird to say that it's Heather Haverleski's most personal work because I'm a big Haverleski fan and as someone who has been incredibly generous of herself in talking about herself to make other people feel less alone in her advice columns and congratulating people for integrating their whole selves in moving through their life I feel like I understand how she works internally more than I ever thought (laughs) I did Um, because I think she understands herself internally even more than she thought she did. It's just a really beautiful portrait and a love letter to her husband and to their marriage. Um, I think she writes about things with such humour and grace and manages to see herself incredibly clearly without being, without falling into, I don't know, the kind of faux self-deprecating, you know, quote-unquote authenticity of like a YouTuber or a wedding influencer. Do you know what I mean? Um, Mm. You know, she is just one of the best writers out there. And it was... A real pleasure to be let in to her marriage, (laughs) which is not the same I could say for most people. So that is *Foreverland*, the divine tedium of marriage.
0: Cool. I am going to recommend a video on YouTube that I watched this week by Todd in the Shadows. Uh, Todd in the Shadows, people who don't know, is a music critic and reviewer who reviews a lot of pop music. But he has an ongoing series called *Train Records*, in which he talks about. albums that killed someone's career or you know came close to killing someone's career and for this week's one or this installment he wrote about witness the katy perry album that came out in 2017 and it's a really fascinating dive into a strange change of direction that katy perry took where she tried to make what she called purposeful pop uh, where she tried to you know write music that spoke to the current moment in the wake of the 2016 election and the ways in which she It was a kind of a very noble failure, but also how everything she was doing around the release of that really seemed to hurt her image. Like, you know, there was that really weird thing where she live streamed her life for like a week, which I had completely forgotten about. And then obviously there was her performance on SNL with Migos, which turned her into just kind of a joke overnight and made her seem completely out of touch. And I think it's just a really great video that's really, um, has a great amount of empathy for, Katy Perry and what she was kind of going through at the time uh, and her attempt to try and become a more kind of like significant, you know, person or a more serious and deep person, having been this symbol of fakeness, you know, for such a long time. And yeah, I think it's also just like a really good, curious bit of, of uh, criticism. So that is train records, witness by todd in the shadows which you can find on youtube and there'll be a link to that in the description for this episode if you've enjoyed this episode then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher play spotify all the usual places rate us reviewers us, and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we're back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and
1: it's goodbye from me